Good morning, afternoon, or evening, darklings, wherever you are in the world right now, and welcome to Once Upon a Terror. I'm your host, Adelina Hill, and today is, well, I'm recording uh, today's episode on my birthday. Um, It's not going to come out until Friday, but I'm currently recording this on Monday, March 20th, so I I just turned 21. So, happy birthday to me, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Well, this week, I have an excerpt of another horror novel. Like I said, I'd be doing this every single week. And I'm going to be reading the first... I can't remember if it's the first chapter or the prologue of this book, but it kept me from the first page to the last, and I just didn't want to put it down. I almost had to slow myself down reading it because I didn't want it to end because I enjoyed it so much and that's very rare for me to find books like that like I have yet to find a novel uh, after this one that has enthralled me so much that I want to like actually reread it like I don't typically reread novels so enough of my bantering about books I really think once this podcast shoots off that I think I should just start a horror uh novel um podcast I guess where I can just ramble about my favorite horror books because I'm I'm an avid reader um so I'll leave a poll in there if you would like to hear that if you're an avid reader listening to the podcast and also like horror novels and I will see about your feedback and well this isn't a product that I'll be starting anytime soon it's just something that I'm debating and delegating anyway onto the show once upon a time today's novel excerpt, I have The Prologue of Kill Creek by Scott Thomas. No house is born bad. Most are thought of fondly, even lovingly. In the beginning, the house on Kill Creek was no exception. The house was made from nothing more fantastic than wood and nails, mortar and stone. It was not built on unholy ground. It was not home to a witch or a warlock. In 1859, a solitary man constructed it with his own two hands and the occasional help from friends in the nearby settlement of Lawrence, Kansas. For a few good years, the many rooms within the grand house were filled with passionate love, albeit once shared in secret, a whisper between two hearts. But as with most places, rumored to be haunted, a tragedy befell the house on Kill Creek. The man who built it was murdered, mere feet away from the woman he loved. His outstretched hands attempted to span the mockingly short distance between them, to touch her dark skin, to caress her hair, his mind insisting that if he could just hold her, they would both be saved, that if he could just wish hard enough, they could still be together. They were not saved. 
His love's body was taken from beside his own and hung from the only tree in the front yard, a gnarled beech. She was already dead, and yet they strung her up in one final insult. The bodies became as cool as the steamy August night would allow, the silence of the house and the grounds lying over like a death shroud. They would remain undisturbed for several weeks, forgotten as the town of Lawrence endured its own tragedy. As dusk fell, the horizon to the southwest flickered with an orange glow of flame. Lawrence was burning. A house stained by spilled blood cannot escape the harsh sentence passed by rumor. The townspeople traveling the quiet dirt path to Kansas City began to speak of the house as if it were alive. How badly they felt for the poor, sad place, orphaned as so many children had been during the bloody border battles preceding the Civil War. It was impossible to say what happened within the empty house on long, dark winter nights, when the wind cut through the barren forest to rattle its wind panes. There was just something about the place that inspired travelers to quicken their pace as they passed Kill Creek Road. Because of its size and grand architecture, the house did not remain empty forever. A few tried to call it home, yet no one felt completely welcome in the house and most moved out within a year. They could not explain why they were compelled to abandon it. It was as if the walls refused to absorb their warmth. Even in the middle of summer, the temperature dropped a good 10 degrees as one passed over the threshold. It had become a bad place, a thing to be feared. In the late 1920s, Kansas Highway 10 was built, linking Kansas City and Lawrence. By the 1970s, the modest paved road had been expanded to a four-lane highway. To someone speeding by a 55 mile per hour, the exit to Kill Creek Road was easy to miss. At the sign that marked the creek itself. As life raced forward and simple times grew even more hectic, the house on Kill Creek became just another empty farmhouse left for the prairie to reclaim. Even the creek that had once fed so greedily from the Kansas River began to dry up. The sun baked its bed until it cracked like old flesh. The closest neighbors still shared stories about the stranger things they witnessed over time. Lights passing in the windows, pounding on the doors, whispers in the darkness. But the house and its bloody history had been reduced to nothing more than a tall tale that parents told their children as they tucked them into bed. Most did not believe the stories. They were told simply to keep their children safe to warn them of the dangers of exploring the dilapidated structure. The house must have been lonely then. The passion that it had built, it lost, pulled down into the earth like morning fog. In 1975, the Finch sisters, Rachel and Rebecca, bought the estate from the country, which had its own since the last occupant abandoned it in the spring of 1961. The Finch sisters were not concerned about the house's dark history. They were 60 years old identical twins, and they had seen and endured much worse than a few bumps in the night, especially Rebecca, who was confined to a wheelchair, the victim of a tragic accident of which neither woman spoke. When the Finches hired local hands to help them refurbish the one grand mansion, many welcomed their arrival, thinking the sisters would finally give the house the care and attention its original owner had intended. The Lawrence Journal World and the Kansas City Star both ran articles about the Finch sisters' arrival. Kill Creek Mansion, finally at home, announced one paper. Twin sisters resurrect haunted house, proclaimed the other. The Finch sisters did not live up to those expectations. They were, as people in the region who won't to call them, odd birds. The Finches rarely spoke to the carpenters working on the house. And once moved in, they almost never stepped foot outside. If one of them could, 
be regarded as friendly, it was Rachel, with her long, flowing black hair, who always paid the workers promptly and fairly. Rebecca, hair pulled painfully tight in a bun, was almost never seen, choosing to stay behind the closed door of the third floor's only bedroom. An elevator was one of the first additions, allowing wheelchair-bound Rebecca to roam freely throughout the spacious house. Yet she never about for long, always returning to the same one room, a single, two-foot-wide window providing her only view of the outside world. Once, a plumber inspecting the pipes asked Rachel why her sister did not come downstairs more often. "'It must get awfully lonely up there,' he said. Without missing a beat, Rachel turned to the man, gave the closest approximation of a smile she could muster, and replied, "'She has all the company she needs.' Two years later, Rebecca Finch was dead. According to the coroner, her heart had simply given out. Rachel continued to live in the house on Kill Creek, refusing visitors, even those who came to express their condolences for her sister's passing. No one, except Rachel Finch, walked the halls of that house for nearly five years. No living being, that is. So it came as a surprise when, in 1982, Rachel granted an interview to the world-renowned parapsychologist and author Dr. Malcolm Adul. Although most of the scientific community regarded him as a fraud, Dr. Adul's books based on his adventures in the paranormal were devoured by a public desperate to believe. Only Rachel Finch and Dr. Adwell witnessed the occurrences during his weekend visit to the house. The resulting book, Phantoms of the Prairie, A True Story of Supernatural Terror, brought the house on Kill Creek to national attention. While critics and skeptics discounted the book as pure fiction, eager readers kept Phantom of the Prairie on the bestseller list for an astounding 36 weeks. The story, Dr. Edwell wove, was short on details and long on atmosphere. But for those seeking proof of the existence of ghosts, the book was all they needed. The house on Kill Creek was officially crowned a doorway to the other side. It was a house of nightmares. More importantly, it was once again known by name. Rachel Finch died in 1998. She was 91 years old. Just like the man who'd built her beloved mansion, Rachel's body was not discovered until several weeks after her death. Teenagers from suburban Kansas City had, on a dare, crossed the weathered bridge spanning the dry, dusty ravine that once was Kill Creek. They made it 100 feet from the front porch before coming to a sudden stop. There, swinging slowly in the beech tree from the very branch that had once supported the dead, slack weight of the original owner forbidden love was Rachel Finch. An amateurish knot dug into the stretched, rotting flesh below her chin. Her thick black hair fluttered softly in the breeze and then settled upon her shoulders. As the onlookers tried to make sense of the sight, the rope creaked, and Rachel's body spun around to face them. A beetle crawled happily into one of the empty sockets that had housed her gray eyes. Many speculated as to what drove the old woman to hang herself. Some assumed it was sheer loneliness. The loss of her sister had become too much to bear. Others suggested that it was the house. The house had driven her to do it, although no one could say exactly why. And then there were those few, those who took morbid glee in tales of tragedy, who whispered in slow, deliberate voices that Rachel had not killed herself at all. She was dragged out of the house and hung from that branch against her will. Someone, or something, had done that to her. It was a reminder that the house was best left alone. After Rachel's death, all of the Finch sisters' belongings were left in the house, as stipulated in Rachel's will, including, one would presume, the furniture in the third-floor bedroom. No one knew for sure what the room held. Its entrance had been sealed shut, 
the staircase now ending in a wall of brick as if no third floor had ever existed. Word spread once more that something was very, very wrong with the house on Kill Creek. Rachel Finch's death was just another chapter in a stark tragedy. Eventually, the house and lot became the property of Douglas County, and despite being on the market once more, no one dared move at the infamous structure. It still attracted its fair share of curious curiosity seekers, a constant source of busy work for the sheriff's department, who routinely patrolled the area. In 2008, a chain-linked fence was erected around the grounds to keep out trespassers. The owners of the local business that donated the time and equipment for the job simply said they slept easier knowing that they helped discourage others from approaching that house. They even threw in a coil of razor wire at the top of the fence for good measure. So the house fell once silent, silent once more. The yard overgrown with knee-high tall grass and clinging ivy. The house on Kill Creek still stands. Empty. Quiet. But not forgotten. Not entirely. Rumors are its life. Stories. It's breath. Tonight, I have two short stories for you after the preface from Kill Creek that I just read. Uh, these are two short stories that I wrote that I just found in one of my random journals because I'm a writer and I just have a bunch of random ass stories everywhere all of the time. So this is uh, called The Yellow Jacket. I hope you enjoy. I am a yellow jacket. I do not have a name, nor do I need one. I simply do my job as yellow jackets do. And if you say sting people, you are wrong. Allow me to explain. It was an average day for me as I was hovering around a half-eaten apple relishing the leftover juices. Do you humans understand how much food you waste? I could feed my whole colony with one apple. And you see that apple as a midday snack or an ingredient for another meal. But this apple has been left out to rot for scavengers to find. Creatures like me, ants, raccoons, and flies to list a few. And I share the apple. I do not harass the other visitors. I have no need. They are not harming me, or my nest, or my queen. Only then do I take action. But recently, my type has evolved. A member of my colony said, Why don't we try something bigger? Something sweeter? I know there is something sweeter than sugar out there, and we have to try it. I hesitated, and then took a moment to think. They are right. We only eat what's available to us. Why not take something for ourselves? I was eating part of an apple a human left to rot on the ground. They take way too much food, much more than they need, even to feed more humans. In their colonies, there are no more than four on average. I've seen it myself. When they throw out their waste, its buckets fall endless. We would never have we would never have to starve again, even in the winter. I told the other worker. They nodded in agreement. We must tell the queen. New food is needed. We agreed and went to her. After explaining our logic to the queen, she stared at us for a long moment. Do you know how idiotic you both sound? We have survived this long because of how we live. So you won't even consider our proposal? My companion asked. It would take an entire colony or more. We would end up dead or killed before they even began to suffer. But it is possible, is it not? I push. The queen twitches an antenna. Leave before you both become my dinner. I'm getting quite hungry. 
We bow and leave. It could be done. She did not deny it. We could eat human flesh. My friend was buzzing with excitement as he tried telling the colony one by one. They spread the news. Thankfully, more agreed than not. And I knew who we could strike down. We all one by one left the ground and separated. We knew some who would not make it and some that would be killed. But it was for the good of the colony. We had to do this or else the wasps and the bees would never respect us. The woman was inside getting ready to leave her home. I sat patiently on the windowsill and watched her comb her head whiskers and clean her mandibles. After a few minutes, she departed for the day. I was first to attack. I gave her a good jab right in the back of the neck. Her whiskers were pulled up, making it way too easy to sting her. She reacted with a swat, but I was too quick. I called the others. They swarmed her bare legs, slashing and jabbing. She ran, but we chased her. More and more of us dived at her neck and arms. She made it a start a short distance before falling to the ground, panting. I landed on her shoulder and kept stinging the same spot over and over again. I was drained of poison. She fell asleep. Eventually, her chest stopped moving. Her eyes stayed open. Her mouth lay open a crack, and I crawled into the sweet, raw flesh that was already wet. It was just as I imagined, sweeter than sugar and apples and honey. I would eat... Why would I... Why would I eat anything else? My offspring will thrive off this kill for hundreds of years. Now they wouldn't be able to stop us because I am a yellow jacket. I do not have a name, nor do I need one. I simply do my job as all yellow jackets do. I didn't name this next story that I wrote. Um, so I'm going to kind of leave it that way. And maybe you can put um, some story um names in the comments if you would like to but this one's a bit bloody she wipes the blood from under her eyes blinking all she sees is red as if she needs a reminder of what else she did no matter how many times she wipes away the stains from her cheeks she has to stop crying to stop bleeding she has to get her shit together the girl takes a deep breath and stands up from the stall she flushes the toilet paper away, watching the still red ring around the inside of the toilet remain. The janitor would just think some poor girl was having a heavy period. She wishes she had periods. She wishes she could bleed where no one else would see and not think she was some kind of psycho, or worse, some kind of sick mutant. Before leaving the bathroom, she checked herself in the mirror. Her pale skin showed where blood remained like paint on a blank canvas. Thankfully, makeup helped her the rest of the way. She wouldn't bleed anymore today, so long as she controlled her temper. She could do that. Could she? She left the bathroom and went back to her science class. I don't understand why he left me. I didn't do anything, Sarah sniffled while rereading the short text her now ex-boyfriend sent her. Her friends rubbed circles around her back and reassured her. Sarah looked up as Emily entered the classroom. You did this, didn't you? Sarah stormed over to her. Jack always eyed you. It didn't matter how much I did. He always liked you. Emily stood awkwardly. I don't know your boy ex-boyfriend thanks to you. Yeah, sure. I gotta go do my homework. Sorry about Jack, Emily mumbled and began to walk away. Sarah grabbed her arm. Emily met her eyes with a cold stare. Let go of me, she said monotone. 
No, we aren't finished here. Are you seeing him? Are you dumb? I don't know, Jack. I've never talked to him. Emily pulled on Sarah's grip. The substitute teacher was just going to let this happen. Perfect day for their teacher to have her baby. You're delusional. Emily pulled her, out of, her arm out of Sarah's grip. Leave me alone. As far as I'm concerned, I see why he left you. Excuse me? If you have something to say, say it to my face. At this point, the whole class was watching in silence. The substitute had headphones in. As far as Emily was concerned, this could go south and end without getting in trouble. Don't engage, Emily's subconscious spoke up. She deserves what's coming to her, Emily responded. She's like you said, delusional. Don't stoop to her level. This is high school. Exactly. Only high school. I do have something to say to your face. Your boyfriend left you because you're borderline obsessed with him and also psychotic. Everyone knows because your name is whispered in the halls. Not mine. Sarah stood against, aghast, as if someone just stopped her, stabbed her, slapped her in the face. That's what Emily should have done. At least I don't bleed every time I get angry, you mutant. How do you not have an iron deficiency? Sarah laughed. Emily pivoted and wrapped her hand around Sarah's chubby throat, pinning her to the wall. Because I don't bleed unless I need to. Emily felt the trickle of blood fall down her cheek. Sarah's mouth bobbed open and closed like a fish out of water. Emily was stronger. She was always stronger. She wiped the tear and smeared it on Sarah's cheek like face paint. Her skin began to sizzle and she screamed. Emily pushed on her throat and leaned close in so that her mouth was right by her ear. And right now, I bleed to hurt you. Thanks for listening. I know this week's episode is rather short. I've been very busy um, celebrating my birthday and doing other stuff like homework because I'm in college and why not? And I also just wanted to uh, get back into sharing my own stories that I've written. I've got a couple more up my sleeve that I'm planning on sharing with you guys. But next week, I'm thinking of doing just some classic ghost stories from a book I found. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, Be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at Once Upon a Terror. If you have anything that you would like to submit to be read on the show, please email that to onceuponaterror at outlook.com. It's all lowercase. Um, So thank you for listening, and I will see you next week.